The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. I want to start with just reading our passage from 1 Samuel 15. I had originally planned to cover chapters 15 and 16, but looking into 15 more this week, I realized we need a full sermon on this. And so, um, Lord willing, we'll catch up. If you're like me and you're scoring at home with a sermon card, we'll catch up in the, in the coming weeks. I want to encourage you to listen carefully to God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word. Listen to God speak. You know, that's why we say the word of the Lord and we respond as a congregation, thanks be to God as we read his word. It's just not a traditional routine that we do, but it's a subtle reminder to us that when the Bible is read and expounded faithfully, it is God's very voice that we are hearing. And that carries with it a certain humility and trembling and joy. And so, listen carefully to the Word of God. 1 Samuel 15, verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and all the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, has set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, you are, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then do you not obey the voice of the Lord? 
Why do you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil on the side of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission of which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the the, the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to the neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house In Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a very weighty and rich passage. In our study, we continue to see the downfall of the first king of Israel. In chapter 13, that downfall was predicted, hinted at in his hasty sacrifice. And in chapter 15, it comes to fruition. As one author said, quote, Obedience was the stone that Saul tripped over in chapter 13 and the rock that crushes him in chapter 15. And like those little black boxes in airplanes that they recover after the crashes, this passage reveals what really goes on here. And what caused such a great crash for this leader? But as we investigate this crash of Saul, we learn so much about God and about his holiness and about his judgment and about his nature and his commitment even to redeem a sinful people for his own glory. We learn in 1 Samuel 15 our need for a Savior. And and studying passages like this lead us all the more quickly to him, to worship and follow him more. And so the title of this passage is, To Obey is Better Than Sacrifice, of this message. To Obey is Better Than Sacrifice, which I think helps us see the main point of this chapter. And I just want to make four observations from the text. So if you're taking notes, they're listed in your bulletin. Four observations from 1 Samuel 15. Number one, to obey is better than sacrifice. 
To obey is better than sacrifice. Number two, God does not change. God does not change. Number three, we're going to see God's righteous and terrible judgment. God's righteous and terrible judgment. And then finally, number four, what I'm going to call the the enemy within. The enemy within. So that's where we're heading as we look at 1 Samuel 15 together. So observation number one, to obey is better than sacrifice. There's multiple themes that run through 1 Samuel 15. Maybe the most important theme that I've found is the theme of listening to God. Listening to God. Listening to God's voice. Hearing the sound of God's voice. And in the Bible, that also implies obeying God's voice. So the same verbal root is used for the words listen, hear, and obey. And that root actually occurs eight different times in our passage. And this is Saul's first priority as king, to listen and obey to Yahweh. Look again at verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Now we miss the emphasis in English, but in Hebrew, the first word in that sentence is me for emphasis. Samuel is, is saying to Saul, You are not a sovereign ruler in and of yourself. The Lord has anointed me or called me to anoint you king. And you, your job is to listen to God's word. And God's clear command to Saul is to destroy the Amalekites. And he doesn't fully obey it. He didn't listen to the sound of Yahweh's voice. And he leaves the king alive, along with the best of the livestock. And if we continue our study in chapter 30, we'll, we'll see that, that he didn't kill all of the Amalekites either. They're still around. So I think there's a, there's a play on words, kind of a dramatic effect, of what, the way Samuel illustrates Saul's lack of obedience. Pretty famous picture there in verse 14. Right after um, Saul just says, Look, I have done everything the Lord said for me to do. Samuel said, Well, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Right? So the sound of God's voice was replaced with the sound of the livestock that showed his disobedience. It's also replaced with the sound of the voice of the people that Saul chose to obey. So verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. If you're looking for a verse to illustrate what fear of man looks like, there's a good one. I fear the people more than God, so I listen to the voice of the people more than God. I fear this person more than God, and I listen and care what they think about me more than God does, or what what I think God does. But lest we think this is a communication problem, that, you know, Saul's a little slow on the uptake. Maybe he's hard of hearing, or just didn't take good enough notes. We see the lack of listening, his lack of obedience, points to something deeper in verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Notice the order. He has turned back from following me. The outflow of that is he's not, obe- he's not obedient. He's not obeying my commands. Now, there's external compliance. There's a lot of stuff that he's doing, or at least an effort to do so. And then he tries to spin any shortcomings in such a way that he hopes God would say, you know, that's not what I told you to do, but that's actually better. 
Your way of doing it is actually better. Kids, don't you hope that sometimes when you don't do exactly what mom and dad said, but you kind of spin it and say, but this is good too. It doesn't work that way. We, we kind of know that, that, that sense in our own heart of trying to justify our own sin to make it seem more palatable. But God isn't interested in external religious gymnastics. He's after our hearts. And Samuel makes clear in the main paragraph of this passage. So this is, I think, the, the, the main point. Verse 22 and 23. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption as the, is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Friends, there ought to be trembling in us when we read words like this, especially as a gathered people in public worship of God, which is at least an external act. Hopefully it's more than an external act, but it is that. It is an external act. Not only does Samuel's poetic rebuke here apply specifically to Saul's situation. So, so there's a specific sacrifice that he did that he should have just obeyed so that he wouldn't have done that. So it, it applies very specifically to him, but it's also a general principle that appears throughout the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. God is not impressed by our religious deeds, especially when we're not worshiping him in our own obedience to his word, when we're called towards him in our hearts. We could list maybe 10 texts. Hosea 6 was one. Another one, Psalm 51, 17, the, the, the call to worship this morning. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. That, O oh God, you will not despise. Proverbs 21, 3, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Psalm 50, beginning in verse 8, not for your sacrifices, the Lord says, do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all the, that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Friends, God is not insecure in being God. He doesn't need our religious um, works. He graciously allows us to know him and to love him and wants us to depend on him and to trust him and to obey him. Friends, the very first sin of mankind was a failure to listen to God. Adam and Eve listened to another voice with another plan, and they followed another's direction. If you're here this morning and you're not normally in church, maybe you wouldn't even consider yourself a Christian. We want you to know how glad we are that you're with us. As Sam said, we want you to be here and to be thinking about these things, especially about who God is and about who you are. I'm sure there's lots of things in this passage that jump out at you and you're like, I don't understand that. That doesn't make sense to me. And that's okay. Maybe one of those things is the, this idea of obedience to God and what that actually looks like. I think one of the roots of Saul's disobedience here in this text is that he thought of God too little. He thought too little of God. He thought God was basically like him. 
with kind of the same thought processes and moral standards that he had. And I wonder how you think of God. Maybe you don't think about God much. Or maybe you do. And maybe you think that even though you know, if you're honest, you're not perfect, God is probably okay with you. Things are fine. I mean, I'm not out in a strange cult worshiping Satan. I'm not doing witchcraft and sacrificing children to idols. I mean, seriously. But friend, did you catch how Samuel resets the scales for the way that we measure our own goodness there in verse 23? Look at that verse. He says there that the sin of rebellion, and the context here is rebelling against God's word, not listening to God's word. The sin of rebellion is as divination and presumption going on about your life as though God doesn't exist and not taking heed to God's word is as idolatry. So witchcraft, consulting the demonic and and worshiping other gods, which we'll see Saul do shortly in 1 Samuel. When we reject the word of God, we reject God himself. And then we put in his place something else. Friends, that's idolatry. So I think it's helpful for us to just honestly ask ourselves, have I, have I kept God's commands? If his standards are this high of love and holiness to himself and to others, have I given credit to him for all the things in my life? And Maybe I've been given credit to myself because I've been my own judge. I just hope you'll give serious thought to who God is, his holy standard, and what it says about you and what it says about me. And I think if you do that, you'll see that we fall short of it. And actually, that's the starting point for you to get to know who God really is. If you're a Christian, a member of our church, listen, we know we're not in the business of making animal sacrifices any longer. So where does our obedience lie? What does it look like for us to to apply this, this passage? I really like the phrase that Paul uses in Romans. He uses it in Romans 1.5 and 16.26 of obedience of faith. He calls it our obedience of faith, which I think helps us see the answer, uh, at least partly. So we have to wage war ourselves as believers against hypocrisy in our lives, which would, which would show itself as external compliance to religious duties, church attendance, membership, service, leadership, when our hearts are actually far from God. Our hearts are actually cold toward God. When it's just me by myself, I'm a totally different person than when I show up on Sunday. Or maybe we're walking in unrepentant sin. Friends, don't you see how God sees right through superficial and self-focused obedience? When we stand and say, look at what I've done, he hears the, the bleeding of the sheep behind us. We don't want to point to our deeds as believers. God delights in our obedience to him as we've had our lives changed by the sacrifice that was made for us through Jesus Christ. So we obey when we believe that every day. And as we do, we seek to honor God in our obedience to his word and we repent when we sin. So Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul writes, and this will be our benediction today, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, which is key phrase, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, your life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, and by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
So Christian, God doesn't need your money or your appearance of piety. He is pleased with us because of Christ alone. And as his children, we strive toward blood-bought, mercy-empowered, steady, consistent, and although imperfect, always repentant, out of the spotlight, obedience. And we want to help one another in the local church to try to put hypocrisy in our lives to death by confessing our sins, by being open about our lives, not, not hiding them, not trying to be someone that we're not, but just being real about our weaknesses and helping others to trust Christ alone as their sacrifice too. So if you're not a member of a church, I would encourage you to join one so that you can be encouraged like this, that you can witness to the power of Christ with another group of people who have been changed by the power of Christ. To obey is better than sacrifice. That's the first thing we see. Number two, God does not change. God does not change. Uh, This past Friday in Ireland, which has been predominantly Roman Catholic, traditionally, they voted to repeal a constitutional ban on abortion, which some of you may realize, um, which effectively now legalizes abortion on demand, almost. And this is what the prime minister said about the decision. He said, quote, This was a great exercise of democracy. The people have said, we want a modern constitution for a modern country. I just want you to catch that um, little phrase, that theological claim from the prime minister that he makes. um, Morality is apparently evolving. And in modern times, an issue like abortion should be addressed differently than in the past. Friends, we need to be aware of this kind of thinking. It's all over the place. And it begs the question, does morality evolve? Does God change with the times? Has he matured past some of these issues that he used to take a hard light on? He used to be really serious about. But now, you know, in 2018, we think about homosexuality and gender identity and abortion differently. Well, in our passage, we find what might be seen as a challenge, a challenge to the doctrine of what's called the immutability of God, the unchangeableness of God, there in verse 10. Look there. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, and this is what the Lord said, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me. What does that mean that he regrets? Um... I mean, if you continue reading, just to see Samuel's heart here. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. We're not told where his anger is pointed, perhaps towards Saul, perhaps towards the whole situation. But he is crying out to the Lord all night because of the situation. God is regretting it. Well, the old versions, or some of your version, may even say, repent. God says, I repent. He says it again at the end of the chapter, verse 35. You probably saw that. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the end of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Um, we just think, what's going on here? How do we make these two texts work? This, this God regrets and God um, you know, doesn't regret, or how do we, we think about that? Well, the Bible often speaks in terms of of God in, in, in terms and ways that we can understand. So often it speaks of God as having arms and legs and feet and eyes. 
But we know that God doesn't have physical arms and legs, but that he is spirit. But it's useful in terms of understanding. And so we call it anthropomorphisms. Try that again. Just that God is speaking to us about himself in human terms. The same is true with emotions or decisions like this. Anthropopathisms. God's pathos. So we read of God changing his mind, of relenting, or in this case, regretting something. And one author said it this way, sometimes God uses the grammar of humanity to tell us what he is like. And so we know that God is not a stoic rock who just doesn't care what's going on. He's doing his thing and everything else is doing their thing. It doesn't matter. But it also doesn't mean that God experiences emotions and makes decisions in the same way that you and I do. Or that he regrets the same ways that we regret. That I regret that I ate that uncooked fish or I had that extra bowl of ice cream. Or that I didn't study for that test. Now, our regrets point to a failing or weakness in us, not so with God. And I think Samuel's clarification there in verse 29 is important to see. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And so, whatever regret means before and after that verse, we know that it doesn't mean the way you and I regret. God is doing it in a different way, and he's speaking about this in a way that we can understand. And I would just encourage you, just, this is just a kind of an aside, if you want to delve into more about this, the importance of this doctrine, listen to Kevin DeYoung's message from Together for the Gospel this past year. Together for the Gospel, Kevin DeYoung on the immutability of God. And he just made, he made several application points. I'll just mention two. Uh, first thing he said is the, the unchangeableness of God. We should see that as a warning. In other words, we should understand and not expect that God is going to suddenly change and be different when we face him one day in judgment. But actually, his justice then is going to be as it is now. We're not suddenly going to get off because God has a change of heart. No, that won't happen. He doesn't go back on his word or let let time sort of heal all wounds. So it should be a warning, but it should also lead us to worship. Because it's good news to know that God is absolutely immovable in his mercy and grace toward us. There's no expiration date on his promises for his people. Even though we are faithless, God is faithful because of Christ. And so we're ushered in to worship him because of it. Great is his faithfulness. There's no shadow of turning with him. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness. Friends, God doesn't change. There's no evolving morality with him. And that's important for our next observation. Number three, God's righteous and terrible judgment. And so far we've passed over those verses in verses one to three about the Lord's command to destroy the Amalekites. But we're not going to avoid them as some of the commentaries that I read this week did conveniently. As you know, there's a bit of a movement today. You may not know this to sort of unhitch the Old Testament from the Christian faith. Partly, I think, because of um, passages like this. Many point to passages like this and question God's goodness. Or try to divide them into two separate gods. One in the Old Testament, who seems to be pretty angry. One in the New Testament, who's pretty happy and forgiving. And friends, we just want to be really clear, that's not true. And very unhelpful. God does not change. There aren't two gods. In fact, if we're to be honest, the New Testament speaks often more clearly about God's judgment, not in finite destruction like we see here, but in eternal destruction. 
that never ends. I think what we really want to unhitch from is the uncomfortable idea that God will judge sin. Whether you're talking to an unbelieving friend who kind of challenges you on passages like this, or you're just struggling with it yourself as a Christian, we need to be honest about what the Bible says about God's judgment, both in its terrible reality and in its righteousness. So again, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Friends, we mentioned at the beginning of this passage, actually the beginning of our study, um, that often we underestimate the holiness of God. It's kind of a starting point for thinking about life. And much of the the problem with this conversation about passages like this is having the wrong starting point. So, So we don't begin with God as the almighty creator and judge who's People have rebelled from him. Our starting point is usually ourselves and our perceived rights and our fairness. And friends, we we, we swim in that water. We swim in the water of self-centrality. And like the fish, we don't know that we're wet. God's holiness is envisioned by our standards of fairness and morality. I think this is why Saul here has this trouble with Agag the king. He spares him, perhaps because he thinks... Kings are a little bit better than normal people. They're a little bit higher, more valuable. That's what he thinks it seems like of himself. But the Bible is clear that we have all sinned against God and all deserve his judgment. God is holy and righteous and good and we have rebelled against him. And it's only his mercy and loving kindness that allows us to continue to live and breathe as sinners. And it's only by his grace that we're saved and brought into a relationship with him. And so the moral problem of God's judgment in this passage is not that he calls for a destruction of an entire people, but that he allows everyone else to survive, to keep living. That, friends, is the scandal. And it flips it upside down the way that we typically think of it. So we need to distinguish from what many will say and look at passages like this and say, well, it's genocide. This is murderous and random killings or ethnic cleansing. Friends, we need to learn a little bit more about the Amalekites. Amalek was the grandson of Esau, so Genesis 36. Uh, His descendants have a long history of violence, especially toward Israel. And so they savagely attack Israel after the Exodus. If you remember, the people of God delivered out of Egypt— And even before they arrive at Mount Sinai, where they're not able to defend themselves, they're defenseless, Moses tells us what happened in Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, so the defenseless. And he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So in other words, this order from God against the people of Amalek is God's justice coming upon them for their brutality and their evil. 
And we want to also add that it's coming upon them 300 years after that attack took place. And still there is no repentance. Notice in verse 18, the Amalekites are referred to as sinners. God is slow to bring about his judgment when, when, in this case, but when he does judge, that judgment, friends, is righteous. What does Paul say in Romans 2.4? Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's patience and kindness are meant to show us who he is and to cause us to repent of our sin. The Amalekites don't do that. God's judgment here against them is final and it is righteous. But it is not haphazard. It is not random. Did you notice how the Kenites didn't fall under the judgment of God? Verse 6. So there's a group of people there living in the same area that, that are dismissed. You must leave. Don't be a part of this destruction. The Kenites were actually Jethro's people. If you remember Moses' father-in-law who helped the people, who, who uh, praised God. And then Samuel's execution of Agag there in verses 32 and 33 just reminds us that God's justice may be slow, but it will eventually come. Agag thought the time for bitterness of death had passed. Friends, isn't that how we think? Isn't that how we think? There's, yes, I know this happened, but, but man, it's a long time ago. Or, or surely this is, we're better now. He comes to Samuel cheerfully. And he's executed before the Lord, meaning God, I think, is ultimately the one judging him for his violence. However, we need to be honest with the text and understand that this judgment is indeed terrible. But it is also righteous. And it's a bit counterintuitive to think this way, but it's also comforting. It's ultimately comforting, especially for God's people, to know that God does not Forget the evil that takes place in the world against the innocent, against the defenseless, against his own people. It may sound better at first to erase the judgment of God's character altogether, but deep down we know that's not what we really want. That would be the greatest injustice of all. But our God is all knowing and all-powerful and righteous. The Lord tells Samuel he has noted what Amalek did. Prince God is all-knowing. He has noted every single evil, every rapist who got away with it, all and every school shooting, church shooting, every terrorist act where the the perpetrator got away or or committed suicide, every racial lynching in the deep south, Every act of persecution against the church, every single evil act or intention will come out and face the judgment of God. You do not have to avenge yourselves, beloved. Leave room for the wrath of God. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, Romans 12, 19. He is the ultimate avenger. One last thing about God's judgment here in our passage, the, the setting here, the context, the context, the, the manner in which God relates to his people in 1 Samuel is drastically different than the way he relates to us today. So here in the Old Covenant, which we're reading, 1 Samuel, God is relating to an ethnic nation with specific promises dealing with a physical land and physical uh, military, physical judgment and war. 
a physical kingdom. On this side of the cross, we understand Jesus to have stepped in front of the mountainous wave of God's judgment against his people. Having taken the judgment that we deserve physically and spiritually on the cross and atoning for the sins of all who would turn from their sins and put their trust in him. Friends, God has noted your sin. God has noted my sin. And that note is very long. Imagine a parchment that is a scroll that is rolled up that you need a, you know, a wheelbarrow to carry. But praise God for Colossians 2.14 that at the cross he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Friends, that is the good news for us who know Jesus Christ. And now the battle before us is a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly paces. And that's the battle before us. God's judgment is no less real today than it was in Samuel's day. All who reject the word of God, all who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, the free offer of grace in Christ, will face the righteous judgment of God forever. Friends, God is just. We are sinners. We need Christ. Turn from your sins. Put your faith and trust in Jesus today and be saved. Give your life over to him as your true king. He took the righteous and terrible judgment of God for us, that we might be his brothers and sisters, children of God. Don't unhitch the judgment of God from your theology. Because you'll unhitch the cross. God's righteousness with it. The last observation we want to make, number four, the enemy within. The enemy within. Now, warfare is clearly the theme of this passage. And we noted the, the different ways contextually we should see that. But I want us to see past the war between Israel and and Amalek for a minute and look at a deeper, I would say more relevant war going on here. And it's the war between Saul and God. More specifically, a war between Saul and himself. There are are competing missions between Saul and Yahweh with, with competing glories. And all throughout the passage you see Saul's commitment to exalting and preserving and protecting and worshiping himself. While he's commissioned to exalt Yahweh, worship Yahweh, protect God's people. Now, the most obvious place you see it is the way that he just edits God's clear commands. So verse 9, to get the full picture of what he does, uh, verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless They devoted to destruction. So Saul made his own judgments based on what he thought was best about God's command, and he obeyed selectively. It's one thing to not know the command of God and to violate them. Not an excuse, but it's one thing. It's another thing to misunderstand the commandment of God, but to rewrite them, to change them to suit your purposes. Because this is the height of arrogance. The fear of the Lord is like an anchor, in, it's like an anchor phrase in the Old Testament. When we fear God, and by that I think we mean revere, respect, honor Him, it calibrates all of our decisions 
in relationships. And when we don't, we, we drift with the culture, with the circumstances, with whatever is going on in our life, like a boat without an anchor. So notice how Saul admits, on the one hand, that he feared the people's voice. There in verse 24, he's trying to please them and be seen as a good king by them, but they are really not his priority. Notice how quick he is to just throw them under the bus, blaming them for his disobedience. He does it in verse 15. They have done this. The people have spared the sheep. Verse 21, the people took of the spoil. But verse 9 is clear that it was Saul and the people that did this. Not only is Saul blind here to his disobedience, and he is blind. Listen, sometimes we're blind to our disobedience. We think we are doing the right thing. I can remember as a non-Christian for many years, just deep down in my, in my heart of hearts, knowing me and God are, are okay. Just be careful when you trust your conscience like that. Just over everything else, over and against God's clear, revealed word. He says that he's obeyed the Lord's commandments in verse 13. He says it again in verse 15. He says it again in verse 20. I've done exactly what you told me to do. But his hunger to be seen and honored by the people still rages. Even after he's been confronted with his sin and sort of repents. We see it in verse 30. And he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. And return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So I really want to be seen as right and I want to be honored before the people. Often it's times in, in victories and success in our own lives where we, we find out most clearly where our allegiance lies. So who gets the credit for this great thing? When God promised Moses back in Exodus that he would destroy the Amalekites, Exodus 17, uh, Moses rejoices and builds an altar. So Exodus 17, verse 15, Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner. He builds an altar to the Lord to show God is my banner. He's done this. Saul defeats the Amalekites, which is the fulfillment of that promise. Hundreds of years later, he too builds a monument. Verse 12, And Saul rose early to meet Samuel rather, rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and, behold, has set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. He built a monument for himself, self-congratulating what he had done. Saul's life was about Saul. His greatest enemy was not Amalek wasn't the Philistines, was himself. Brothers and sisters, there's lots of things going on in our lives right now. Lots of external pressure and challenges that we all face. We're a, we're a fairly young congregation. There's lots of just kind of growing pains that we experience, I think, particularly as a church. But we have to remember that those challenges often reveal the real challenge, the real battle that's going on internally between the flesh and the spirit, the self and selfish desires in obedience to Christ. Galatians 5.16, Paul says, But I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, 
rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. When we are led by the flesh, we are building monuments to ourselves with our lives. We are making provision for the enemy that God has commanded us to destroy. That's our holy war. To take no quarter in our battle against the flesh by the Spirit. And the good news is, in that battle, the victory has already been won. Colossians 3, verses 4 and 5. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Friends, that's the gospel logic we have to live by. Because we're raised with Christ, therefore, because the flesh has been crucified with Christ, therefore we live, therefore we mortify. Not the other way around, that I mortify and try to do better so that I... No, that's demonic. It has to start with the gospel and lead then to obedience. Beloved, how goes the war? How is it going with you? When we're devoted to our flesh, our lives are lived in competition for God's purposes for us. Sometimes it just comes up and bubbles up and we're thinking, yeah, this is just kind of all about me. I remember being invited to preach at chapel at a seminary, the seminary I went to. And I remember almost all of my desires that day were to impress the professors that taught me. And the sermon was probably terrible with a lot of big words and theological, you know, insights. But I really didn't care a lot about the students who were sitting in the chairs. Um, I really wish I had that day back. Really wish I had that day back. Because it was about me. It wasn't about God. It wasn't about God's word. Well, it was so easy to drift into that, isn't it? We have been given a mission. A clear mission from God. He has won the war for us. And now he's called us to go make disciples by the power of the Spirit of the nations. That's why we exist as a church. That's what we're called to do. We don't, we don't need to rewrite that mission. We don't need to edit it. We don't need to just memorize it and talk about it. We need to be faithful to it and obedient to it. We need to give our lives for God's mission, for God's glory, that when they lay us in the ground, they would say, the Lord was his banner. The Lord was his banner. May our lives be a monument to him, not to ourselves. Now, we need to conclude I was at an event late, or earlier this week and I saw a young man wearing a shirt that just said, obey, obey. And my kids encouraged me not to talk a lot to strangers because I embarrass them sometimes. But, so I didn't go up to him and say, hey man, tell me about your shirt. But I wondered kind of the meaning behind it. Like, hey, that's good. But right, we need to say more, don't we, as Christians than that. We need to say more than that. I mean, it's hard on a shirt, it's a shirt. But the message of this passage is that obedience is better than sacrifice. Yes, we must seek to obey. But when we grapple with this reality, even that phrase, we have to understand a bit of the circular problem that we're in. The sacrifice exists in the first place because our obedience is lacking and was lacking and always will be lacking. So yes, it's better to obey than to sacrifice, but we have to sacrifice and, and because we can't obey and when we do the sacrifice, even that sometimes is flawed. And we get this circular kind of pattern that we're in and we don't know what to do. This pattern of falling short. 
So we need to say more than obey. We need to say more even than make your outward deeds have an inward obedience as well. Because we've blown it in that too. The good news of the gospel and the deepest reason I think texts like this are in the Bible is that to show us God has provided both the obedience and the sacrifice for us. Jesus Christ is our obedient sacrifice that we could never achieve. Only Jesus can solve this circular problem because his sacrifice is sufficient to pay our sin debt. Because his obedience takes the place of ours. His life is exchanged for ours. His death was in our place. And when God sees us, those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ as Lord and King, he sees perfect obedience. Philippians 2.8 And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Jesus is our obedient sacrifice. And when we repent of our sin and trust that perfect obedience, that perfect sacrifice by Jesus, our lives are changed. Our allegiances are moved away from worshiping ourselves and living for ourselves. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.15. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Brother and sister, what are you living for? Who are you living for? Let's pray. Lord, we want to live for you. And we know the only way that that happens is by a radical change in our lives, by the Spirit, because of the gospel. And Lord, I just pray, I know there's been a lot through this that I've said and I just pray that you would take the things that are good and make those really clear to those that need to hear them. Take the things that weren't helpful away. Lord, would you save people? Would you open up someone's heart and mind to love Jesus and see you and your holiness and their falling short of your glory and your gracious, compassionate, kind love through the gospel and come running to Christ. Lord, make us a people that love Jesus, more than anything else, love the gospel and love those who who yet are in darkness and need to come and see and savor the beauty and satisfaction of him. Help us, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the great commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.